The first degree of a scale is often referred to as the tonic, and the second degree, one note higher in the scale, is called the supertonic. The easiest way to turn a tonic into a supertonic is to expose it to gamma radiation, toxic waste, or super soldier serum. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about bad music theory puns, super bad music theory puns, and sometimes music theory puns that are just kind of sub-medians. This is an entirely listener-supported show, and support means more than just becoming a patron or sending a donation, though of course there are links for that in the show notes if you'd like to do it. Listener support also just means being a part of the show's community, sending in questions, recommending the show to your friends, and really just listening. So thanks for listening. On this episode, you've got questions and I've got answers. I'm opening up the bottomless Strong Songs mailbag to talk about whatever you ask me about. This time we've got cinematic flute solos, how to find a music teacher, and plenty of tricky rhythms to unpack, so let's tune up our instruments, spread out our sheet music, and get into it. writes, I've had this thought for some time and I thought I'd run it past you. How hard is it for singing drummers to sing and drum at the same time? If I hear a song with a good beat, I'm always tapping along and trying to sing at the same time, but quite often I lose the beat as I try to keep up with the lyrics. So is it actually hard for professional drummer slash vocalists like Phil Collins, Don Henley, Roger Taylor? Is it hard for them to do this, and is it actually harder to drum and sing than it is to play another instrument while singing? So this is a great and very fun question. Is it hard to sing and play the drums at the same time? Because it is a pretty impressive thing to see, and still feels kind of unusual since typically lead singers are playing guitar, they're kind of standing up in front of the band. To see the drummer doing that is just a little bit unusual, even though there are so many examples of great singing drummers, like the ones that you cite, Tony. So I'll caution in giving this answer that I'm coming at this as someone who's a medium drummer and a medium singer, and I don't do both at the same time. And over the course of this answer, I'll also share a few great singing drummers that I think that you should check out. So I find it extremely impressive whenever I hear a great record by an artist that I'm unfamiliar with, and I'm really digging the music, and then I learn that they're not only the singer and the songwriter, but they're also the drummer. Anderson Pock is a great example of that. You're hearing him right now. He is a great singer, great rapper, great writer, and a hell of a drummer, too. So I do think there's something really impressive about being able to drum and sing at the same time, and I don't want to get too qualitative about whether it's more or less difficult than other things, but it's definitely uniquely difficult, and it's really impressive when someone can do both. Two-step in the corridor, spinning the greatest hits of calling notes, open up chronic smoke, I know my time will flee. I recently had that experience listening to an album picked by someone in the Strong Songs Discord, actually, in our listening club that we do over there, Jameson Ross's new album, Jammo. I knew of Ross as a jazz drummer, but I wasn't aware that he's such an incredible singer, but he's a really great songwriter and a serious vocalist. He just also happens to be really good at drums, too. So let's zoom out a little bit first. Singing, 
That's a challenging thing to do. It requires a lot of focus and technique, particularly if you're singing technical, busy, complex music that moves through different vocal registers. Playing an instrument well, that's also challenging. It takes a lot of coordination and focus to be able to play a song just basically in time, especially if you're playing with a band, to really get in the pocket and to play in tune, to make it sound good. That takes a lot of focus and that only increases as the music that you're playing becomes more complex. So playing an instrument while singing, that's even more challenging. I studied saxophone in school and it wasn't until after I graduated that I realized that I wanted to play guitar and write songs and that was a huge difference. Saxophone is a single note instrument. You can be pretty single-minded when you're playing the saxophone. Learning how to play guitar and sing at the same time required me to split my brain between what my hands were doing on the guitar and what my voice was doing as I sang. It was a real challenge and it's still something that I find challenging today. So singing and playing an instrument, that's already challenging. But I do think there's kind of a difference between drumming and playing other standard rock instruments like bass, guitar, and piano. And that's related to what I guess I'll call stylistic norms that exist around those instruments and the ways that it's possible to play them while singing. There are loads of singers who play guitar and piano, and there are plenty who also play bass, and those instruments, especially the guitar and to a somewhat lesser extent piano, the methodology of playing those instruments has evolved over hundreds of years of solo singers accompanying themselves using the instrument. As a result, there's a pretty well-realized way of playing each of those instruments, a kind of a vocabulary that's less involved and more tuned toward accompaniment. That's one reason you'll see a lead singer playing rhythm or acoustic guitar in a rock band. They'll be playing chords or simple figures, and the lead guitarist will be the one who kind of just sings back up and doesn't do that much singing, but they handle all the complex riffs and the guitar solos. Or in the case of guitar solos, who are also lead singers, your Jimmies, your Stevies, your Mayers, you'll typically see them playing simpler accompaniment with themselves as they sing, and then they'll really open up during instrumental sections. So it's a long-standing norm, and the basic arranging methodology of a pop or rock ensemble has grown around that norm of the lead singer who plays piano or plays guitar, so there's kind of just a more established musical playbook for being a singing guitarist or bassist or pianist, and I don't think that same playbook really exists for drummers, at least not quite in the same way. And that's the thing that I think does make it a bit more challenging to play in a traditional band as a singing drummer than if you were playing a different instrument. Part of that is also just that the drums are such an involved and physical instrument. You play with your whole body and it really requires you to move and exert yourself. And that's just challenging since singing is so much about breathing and you really need to control your breath. That's harder to do when you're playing an instrument that just requires more of you physically than strumming a guitar. That's actually also why I have huge respect for any singer who can handle dancing and even simple choreography while they're also singing. And why I cut pop singers slack when it comes to lip syncing and double tracking when they're all also doing really rigorous dancing on stage. Singing when you're physically exerting yourself is really tough. Also, if you're drumming and singing, you'll also have to split your rhythmic conception in two, since vocals don't always sit exactly on the beat with the drums. They lay back or they push ahead. A singer has a lot of leeway within the groove, and that's easier to do if you're strumming chords on a guitar than if you're playing complex subdivided drum grooves with all four of your limbs. And I do want to say that I think the bass is a bit special in this regard as well. It's not as physically demanding as the drums, but since it's a rhythm section instrument, the bass does have a different musical responsibility in a band, and singing while playing 
playing bass is a little bit differently hard than doing something like singing while playing guitar just due to the bass's role in the rhythm section. But yeah, performing as a rhythm section member and as a lead singer, it means you're at the bottom and on top of the band. You're kind of both pieces of bread in the sandwich. You're at the bottom, you're holding everything up, and you're also on top being expressive and singing the vocal melody, which is very much at the top of the arrangement. That's a lot to keep track of. Here's an example. This is the great Josh Dion. He used to front a band under his own name, the Josh Dion Band in the 2000s. Now he plays with a group called the Paris Monster. They're awesome. Definitely check out Josh Dion if you haven't heard his stuff. This is him with his own band in 2006 live on a tune called Take the Time. And just listen to this section coming up to the way that he lays back his vocal delivery while keeping the groove locked on the drums. The teacher doesn't even know what he or she is teaching If you listen on the other end Just like the silent congregation after a sentence of preaching When the messengers are having sent Like, give me a break But there's a word in the way that in the echoes ramble in And the stranger coming sets you free It's not necessarily the books you read Sometimes the answer lies tied to you and me Just like we say, no, So yes, there is something extremely impressive about a drummer who can do that physically, conceptually, and rhythmically. And I do want to say there are exceptions to everything that I just said. None of that is absolute. There are musicians who play bass, guitar, or piano who will write interlocking vocal and instrumental parts that are just as complex and challenging as any drum part. Sting is a great example of that. He plays these super involved technical bass lines while singing really difficult and technical lead vocal parts as well. Esperanza Spalding also comes to mind as a jazz bassist who also sings and I don't really understand how her brain works to be able to do some of the things that she can do. Raul Midon is actually another maybe less well-known example. He's a guitarist and singer. He was ahead of me at the University of Miami and is a monster. He'll play some of the most bananas guitar parts while also singing equally complex vocal parts. So I know that sounds a little bit like a trumpet, but he's doing that with his lips. So that's actually him singing while accompanying himself on guitar. So, yeah, I mean, what he's doing there is just as difficult and impressive as playing drums while singing. This recording is from a live 2013 performance of his song, Sunshine, I Can Fly. I'll link to it in the show notes, and you should watch the whole performance. It's pretty much the whole Raul Midon experience. And at one point, he's actually playing drums. He's playing a bongo drum with one hand, playing guitar with his left hand, just doing, like, finger-tapping hammer-on stuff. And he's singing at the same time. When you're with me, I can fly. Oh, baby, Cuando estás conmigo, estoy volando, estoy volando, estoy volando, estoy volando con ese amor que traigo dentro de mi corazón. So the point is, playing drums and singing isn't harder than singing and playing other instruments since the difficulty level is so contingent on what you're playing, but it's definitely uniquely difficult and it has its own challenges. I'll close out by highlighting another great singing drummer, Mike Calabrese, who plays drums with the band Lake Street Dive, who you're probably familiar with. They're doing really well. They're a really big band right now. And their most famous songs are sung by lead singer Rachel Price. And she's an incredible singer, but Calabrese and bassist Bridget Carney are also fantastic singers. And their harmony between the three of them, that's a big part of the band's sound. And I always like it when Calabrese takes a chance to do his drumming lead singer thing. Well, I used to get down. 
Anytime I got the notion Follow each girl to the end of the world And while I initially thought this upcoming lyric was about playing snare drum with his left hand, turns out it's actually about his wedding ring, which makes more sense. So yeah, that's just a little tour of singing drummers and some of the things that make it a uniquely challenging, uniquely fascinating musical endeavor. Jonathan writes, I've been listening to Veronica by Elvis Costello for years. Several times during the song when he ends a phrase with the name Veronica, I can't tell what note the melody ends on. I try to sing along and I just can't settle on what note to sing. If it fits sometime, I'd love to hear what you have to say about what's happening with that tight harmony. All right, well, let's listen. This is the phrase in question in Veronica by Elvis Costello from his album Spike from 1989. Here comes the note in question. Hmm, <laughs> that was a little weird, wasn't it? Okay, let's listen again. They do it at the end of this verse. Ears on, listen really closely. <laughs> so the reason that note is so hard to pin down is because of the relationship between the two harmonized vocal parts, the chords of the song, the arrangement, and your own expectations of the melody as a listener, or really your subverted expectations. I had a lot of fun trying to recreate this on my own and to figure out why that final note of the phrase is so hard to get a purchase on. I think I've basically figured out what's going on, though it is different every time, and it's a kind of nebulous thing, because it's hard to have a totally solid answer on a nebulous thing. I mean, it just goes a little bit out of focus on that note, and that's because of the pitch of the two harmony vocal parts, but it's not like, I'm not going to get scientific here, I couldn't do that without isolating the stems and, I don't know, using some kind of pitch identifying software, but that's no fun. It's much more fun to try to figure it out just based off the recording, using my ears, and hear what I can hear, and try to explain it as best I can. Also, this is a great song. Elvis Costello is really good. I'm totally going to do an episode about one of his songs one of these days. Not sure when, but it'll happen. So what I'm hearing here is a collision between where I'm expecting the melody to go and where it actually does go. This is a really straightforward melody with a straightforward harmony part on top of it. We're in the key of C. The chords just go one, four, one, five. Really straightforward chord progression. And the melody is what you could call sing-songy. It goes where you expect it to. Ba-na-na-na-na-na-na. It's very inside, and so you expect it to end in a pretty inside way. The whole phrase conforms to your expectations as a listener, so you expect the end of the phrase to conform to them as well. So here's me singing the lower harmony alone, and I'll just end it exactly where you would expect it to. I'm singing the one, the C, in the key of C. Is it all in that pretty little head of yours? What goes on in that place in the dark? Well, I used to know a girl and I would have sworn that her name was Veronica. Really straightforward, couldn't be simpler. And Jonathan, I'm guessing that when you sing this song, you probably want to sing something like that. Your ear draws you toward that final C, that tonic note. 
The harmony part, which is basically just the same melody up a third, that only reinforces the idea that this whole thing will conform to your expectations. It moves in parallel pretty much throughout, and it does just what this kind of third higher vocal harmony does. It reinforces the melody underneath it. So here's both parts ending super inside, again, just like you'd expect it to. Is it all in that pretty little head of yours? What goes on in that place in the dark? Well, I used to know a girl and I would have sworn that her name was Veronica. That's just what you would call an inside ending, just a C in the bass and an E in the higher part. That's a major third, just straightforward. I mean, we're in the key of C major. You don't get any more straightforward than a C and an E singing together in harmony on a C major chord. In fact, not only that, this is actually a textbook authentic cadence. The lower voice is a B and the upper voice is an F. That's a three and a seven in G, which is the five of C. Anyways, it resolves to a C and an E and a B and an F resolving to a C and an E. I'm not gonna get too much more into it, but that's the most elementary kind of five one chord resolution that there is. Those precise notes resolving in that exact direction is like the backbone of European classical theory. So my point is it's very familiar. You've heard that exact chord resolution a thousand times, but the thing is, in this recording, that's not quite what it sounds like. Here's me. That her name was Veronica. And here's Elvis. That her name was Veronica. It's just a little bit off, right? It walks all the way up to resolving, and then it just sort of unplugs with the progress bar at 90%. That her name was Veronica. So okay, what's going on? Well, as best as I can describe it, it sounds to me like he's landing on that final note, that major third between the two harmony parts, but in both the lower melody and his overdubbed higher harmony, he's stopping just before he fully reaches each note. So his lower note, which is coming up from that B to the C, Veronica, he goes somewhere in between. He sort of sits there kind of closer to a B, Veronica. It's just kind of in between. And on the upper note, he's resolving from an F to E. Veronica, Nica. He kind of just sits on this like sharp E. Veronica. Kind of right there in between the E and the F. He also doesn't hold the note out for a long period of time. He kind of just hits it and quits it. He gets on and just tosses it away. And as a result, you get this really unsatisfying end of the phrase. There's also the fact that immediately after he gets off the vocal notes, this trumpet sound comes in over on the right, and it plays the same notes up the octave as the higher harmony part, but it plays them right in tune, which I at least find even more disorienting. It was fun to try to recreate this, and basically, instead of this, that her name was Veronica. I came up with this. Well, I used to know a girl and I would have sworn that her name was Veronica. <laughs> it's really a testament to the power of dissonance. It can make you lose your grip as a listener, especially when it comes in an unexpected place in an otherwise very consonant phrase. I know I didn't exactly recreate it there, but that's because it's so precise and weird and basically microtonal, though that term wasn't as fashionable in 1989 as it is now. That her name was Veronica. 
trying to recreate this gave me a sense of what Elvis might have been thinking when he ended the phrase that way, and I do think this was a conscious choice on his part. That's because if it only happened in the first verse, I'd chuck it up to whatever, that's just how he sang at that time, but he sings the same harmonies a little bit differently in the second verse, and he does the same thing. So to me at least, this feels like a playful songwriting decision, like he's singing this sing-songy, by-the-numbers, counterpoint vocal harmony, and then at the very end of the phrase, he's just throwing it away like it's nothing. By refusing to end the line in the expected, in-tune, consonant way, he throws the song into this very different energy. It feels more punky and careless, kind of uglier and more relaxed. So I'd say this is definitely a creative choice, but as for what it might mean, actually after I published this episode, I heard from a few listeners who told me that the Veronica in this song is actually based on Elvis Costello's grandmother who was succumbing to Alzheimer's disease, and that one could interpret this harmonic choice as a way of representing that, a perfectly in tune textbook harmony going slightly blurry at the very end. This song was also co-written by who else but Paul McCartney, which seems worth mentioning. I didn't do a close lyrical read when I initially recorded this episode, but I wanted to include that since it's an interesting and poignant interpretation. So I hope that answers your question, Jonathan. Thanks for giving me a chance to talk about Elvis on the show. He's such a great songwriter, and I'm sure I'll talk about him again at some point down the road. Next up, we have a couple of questions about music lessons, since on a recent episode I was talking about how I've been taking guitar lessons and how great it's been, how I wish I'd been taking music lessons this whole time, even though I kind of stopped taking them after music school. So I got several versions of this question. Michael writes, I'm an amateur pianist who has played since childhood and I've taken lessons over the years. Your podcast has brought back the excellent idea of lessons again, but my difficulty is finding someone in my local area. There simply are not teachers around here except for those who do classical music and teach children. I wish I could find someone who has a passion for teaching and was geared toward working with my interests to make me a better musician within the limits that are doable given my age and the amount of time I have to practice. There's a music department at a local university that may be of help, but otherwise, do you have any suggestions for finding a teacher, and do you know of any good online teaching instructors? Bob writes with a similar question with a couple of different ingredients. He writes, I'm an experienced piano player. I joined a band recently and I want to improve my skills, so I'm considering taking lessons again. I don't know of any good local instructors, and of course, remote lessons got big during the pandemic. So I'm considering that, and the other option I'm considering is to enroll in an online class at Berklee College of Music. They provide lessons, course content, and live Zoom class once a week. The 12-week session for rock and blues piano really drills you. They suggest allocating five to 10 hours a week to absorb the lessons, practice and prepare video recordings of assignments, which are reviewed and graded by the instructor. And like I said, I got a lot of different versions of this question, so I'm going to answer kind of broadly. Those are just two examples, so I'll speak to them, but really I'm kind of speaking to everybody who asked some version of this question. So yeah, how to get music lessons. It can definitely be intimidating or a bit overwhelming to find a teacher, and while solving that problem is gonna be a little bit different for each person in each part of the world, I do have some general advice. So first I'll give a couple pointers on finding a teacher, and then I'll offer some thoughts about online versus offline, courses like the one Bob describes, and a couple other things. So for starters, 
you don't have to find a teacher alone. My first advice is to just start asking your friends, people who live in your town, if they know anyone who teaches lessons on the instruments you want to learn on. You might actually be surprised how many people you know know a teacher. Maybe their kids are taking lessons with someone, or a friend of theirs is taking lessons, or even they know someone who teaches lessons. It's especially easy to find piano teachers, and you both play piano. Sometimes other instruments as well. It only takes one lead to find someone, and music teachers tend to know other music teachers. So even if one person can't do it, they might know somebody else. Just start asking people. Start mentioning to people. Don't just sit there at your computer thinking, "Okay, this is a problem that I must solve." By myself, just me and the internet. You can start to ask your friends about it. Second, you can try a music center or music shop in your town. This won't be true everywhere, but a lot of music shops, music stores, your kind of local place. I don't know if Guitar Center does this, but maybe something a little bit more local. They'll tend to offer lessons on most instruments. A lot of their students will be, you know, kids who are in school, but they teach adults too. So call around and ask if any local stores also offer lessons. Michael, your idea to try your local university's music school is a Really good idea. When I was in music school, almost everyone I was in class with, including me, taught music lessons. The professors taught music lessons. The adjuncts, the doctoral students, they all taught lessons. A music university is basically just full of people who teach music lessons. So you wouldn't be out of line to just email the instrumental department head and say you're looking for a private teacher. That you're local, you're in the area, you're looking for someone. Do they have any students? Anybody who might be good for it? They'll probably get back to you and let you know. As for online versus in person, in my opinion, most lessons are going to be better and more effective in person than online via Zoom or Skype or something like that. I've talked about this on the show before. I think it was about voice lessons, and my thinking has evolved somewhat since the pandemic gave me and everyone else in the world a lot more experience with online lessons. I actually do my voice lessons via Zoom, and Zoom is pretty good for voice lessons in a way that's different from instrumental、uh, lessons. So I actually do think there's a little more room for Zoom voice lessons than other. Things so I've done some instrumental lessons online and I've had some good ones, but a lot of it depends on how well set up your teacher is to do Zoom lessons. If they're really tricked out, they have a good interface, they're playing directly into it, and it's coming through nice and clear. You can really hear what they're doing. They set it up with two cameras so they can see your face and your hands. You can see their face and their hands. That can work, but they need to be really set up for it. If they're just on a laptop mic with a built-in camera, you're getting kind of weird audio stuff with Zoom cutting out. You're unable to tell what they're showing you. The audio is just sort of not clear. That's just not going to be nearly as effective as sitting in a room with someone. One tip, actually, if you're ever doing music on Zoom, is to toggle the setting "Turn On Original Audio." To toggle that on, you have to make it visible. It's in a menu somewhere. But this is something I didn't know about until I started doing voice lessons. And if you turn it on, the audio quality. It's way better. It stops cutting out higher harmonics, so that is a good thing to do if you are doing Zoom lessons. But yeah, I would say just make sure that your teacher really does Zoom lessons and isn't just sort of setting up a laptop and kind of faking it, because that will be a lot less effective. So I do think that in person is better if you can do it, but Zoom can be pretty good depending on the teacher, and it's always worth giving it a shot. I mean, if it's not working out, you can just find a different teacher, and even Zoom lessons will give you one of the best things about private lessons, which is accountability. For me, anyways, one of the most Valuable things about taking lessons is just the fact that each week I have to be ready to sit down with my teacher Scott, and he's going to turn on the metronome, and I'm going to have to play whatever you know we decided I was going to work on that week. And having that accountability really makes me practice to a different level. It's actually why I've been posting those videos to Instagram of just little guitar songs because 
forcing myself to work them up to the level where I'm happy performing them, you know, recording them and posting them to social media, it makes me get them a lot more proficient than if I were just kind of playing and getting them pretty good. So that accountability is great. And that can work on Zoom. Like I said, it can work totally passively just posting to social media. It's nice to have that kind of a goal that you have to hit. So online lessons can be great. They provide that. They provide a lot of other stuff. And they let you study with people all around the world, people who are world class, you know, and really, really good and really good at what they do. So it can be great. As to which online teacher to study with, I don't really know, unfortunately. There are loads of people teaching guitar and piano online. I'm sure a lot of them are great. I'm sure some of them are less great. Most people sell courses online. You'll see these people on their YouTube channels sort of giving lessons, but then trying to sell you their course on their website. In general, I find that those sorts of things, pre-recorded videos that walk you through something. For me, those work better as auxiliary material for me to take into my lessons or just use to kind of give myself something new to work on rather than as a full stand-in for one-on-one lessons. That's just me, but uh, I find those courses aren't as good. But you can also find a lot of those people do one-on-one lessons via Zoom. Usually, you know, they're pretty expensive, but sometimes it's worth it. So it can just kind of depend. And I don't, I can't really, you know, recommend or endorse anyone because I haven't taken most people's lessons. Last thing, that Berkeley course that Bob described, that sounds pretty cool. I bet you'll get a lot out of it. I actually studied at Berkeley College of Music in Boston for a summer back when I was in high school. I was very lucky to get to do their summer program. It was this intensive thing, five weeks long. It was great for me. It really supercharged you know, my, my whole jazz education. So it's your call whether you want to invest in something like that, since knowing Berkeley, it's probably not cheap. That's you know, I'm, I'm just guessing that those programs are, are pretty expensive, but they're also pretty involved, as you described. So if if you go into it taking it really seriously, you allocate the time that you're going to need to do the thing, to practice, to be prepared, to do even more than they're asking you to do, I bet that that or other courses kind of like that, that could be beneficial. But I'm going to say this, and I'm going to sound like a broken record, I think the best way to do that would be to go in with a private teacher of your own who you've already worked with and who knows that you're doing it. because. It's going to be a really intense period of time. You'll get thrown a you know, ton of information will get thrown at you. You're going to learn so much. Your brain won't be able to process it all. And having a private teacher to work through it with after the fact can really lock in a lot of the things that you worked on over the course of the course. So those are my thoughts. Don't be afraid of Craigslist. Don't be afraid of calling numbers on flyers that are stuck up in a coffee shop near you. And like I said, don't be afraid of just asking people you know if they know anyone who teaches lessons. There are so many good teachers in the world. You shouldn't feel shy about trying a bunch, seeing what works for you. And yeah, just just kind of give it a shot. You know, start asking, start calling people, get out there. I'm really happy to hear that I've got some of you thinking about finding a private teacher and doing private music lessons. And if you do start taking lessons, I hope that you will let me know how it goes. Derek asks, is the flute solo in Anchorman good? Uh, Mr. Burgundy, we will be honored if you will play jazz flute for us. And my answer is yes, Derek. The flute solo in Anchorman is really, really good. Would everyone love to hear Ron Burgundy play some jazz flute? So just in case this context is lost on any of you out there, in one of the greatest scenes in the 2004 comedy Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, Will Ferrell's buffoonish but charming protagonist, Ron Burgundy, gets up in front of an L.A. club and plays some jazz flute. Keep the cymbals splashy, and uh, Jerry, let's take the baseline for a walk. <laughs> I love that. Keep the cymbals splashy. Let's take the baseline for a walk. It's almost a nod to Michael J. Fox's equally unhelpful instructions to the band in Back to the Future, which I actually talked about in another Mailbag episode a little while back. 
All right, guys, uh, listen, this is the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? So Ron gets up, and at first, you're not sure how it's going to go. I'm not hearing it right. Hold on. We got it. But then he pretty quickly takes the reins, and it turns out he's amazing at the flutes. I have an eggs coming at you. Hold on, people. Hope you got your griddles. Pretty soon the tempo picks up and things totally go off. He's shredding on the flute. He's doing this kind of Rassamble and Kirk, Jethro Tull, you know, Ian Anderson hollering through the flute thing. He inhales some liquor into the flute and then blows it out through the flute across a lighter, which causes flame to go shooting out of the flute, which is, you know, pretty hard to do. He's sliding into the bathroom and playing a solo. He's all over the place and it brings the house down. So yes, I mean, listen to that. That is some absolutely shredding flute. It's extremely legit in every way. The first time I saw this movie, I fell out of my chair at the seat. I was so grateful that they took the time to get a flutist who really, truly knew what they were doing. And that flutist is a person, a guy named Catisse Buckingham. He's an LA-based saxophonist flutist. You're hearing him right now. He's actually a pretty great rapper, too. I noticed the apotheosis of focus. I follow the hypothesis to what causes this. Instead, people see dead people in an empty room. I see hindsight in my mind. Buckingham has actually talked about the surreality of having what was a pretty ordinary recording session turn, thanks to the way it's used in the film and Will Ferrell's incredible pantomimed performance, into something that's become synonymous with the entire idea of jazz flute. Like, chances are if you say jazz flute to someone, they're going to picture Will Ferrell with a mustache standing on a table shooting fire out of the end of a flute. And that must be bizarre, having played a solo that became that iconic, was heard by that many people, but 99.9% of them probably will never know that it was you, and they'll associate it instead of the fictional character. I guess that's just the life of a studio musician. So yeah, it's a killer solo, and just to give you all one little fun fact that you can know about this solo, a slightly hipper way to think about it, Buckingham actually works in a little quote right at the start of the solo when Ron first starts playing. He actually quotes a famous Brazilian samba tune, one of my favorite, actually, samba melodies, right at the start, right here. We got it now. It's all right. That's the opening phrase of A Felicidad by the great Antonio Carlos Jobim, Brazilian composer and one of the greatest melodists to ever live, in my opinion, anyway. This is the marvelous Brazilian bossa nova singer Astrid Gilberto, most famous for her work on Getz Gilberto, that famous bossa nova record. Here she's singing a version of A Felicidad that was actually arranged by the master Gil Evans on her 1966 record Look to the Rainbow. I always like to point out little quotes like that, tiny connections between different points of the grand musical tapestry, and when Ron Burgundy via Catisse Buckingham opens his solo with that melody. We got it it's just a short, small nod to one of music's greatest and most sensual composers. Tristeza não 
so anyways, yes, to answer your question, the flute solo in Anchorman is extremely good, and the soloist who played it, Katice Buckingham, deserves all the credit in the world for bringing so much energy and skill to the solo and for giving Will Ferrell so much to work with when he recorded the scene. It really is one of my favorite jazz scenes in any movie. Jeff writes, how does it feel to be the number one resource for counting songs on the entire internet? I don't know about that, Jeff. I think there's probably a lot of people who are ahead of me in that, but sure, I'll take it. Jeff writes, I have two songs that I'd like to trouble you with, one that I'm more sure of than the other. First, Randy Described Eternity by Built to Spill. Jeff continues, I think I have this figured out, but I'm curious whether you feel it the same way. I think that it's a measure of 4-8 followed by two measures of 6-8. Is that how you would notate this? So here's an interesting thing. I think that Jeff is right, but that's not how I would notate it. So Jeff's got it, a bar of 4-8 followed by two measures of 6-8, which I guess I would do as 4 of 3, like this. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, 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 four, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one. But here's the thing, that's how the groove is being subdivided, but actually, this song is just in 4-4. One, two, three, four. So Jeff, you probably already knew that, but yeah, to answer your question, I would notate this as being in 4-4, just common time. I'd read out the groove along the lines that you've got, dividing up the 16 eighth notes of a two-bar phrase into four eighth notes and then two sets of six eighth notes, but I definitely notate it in four. It's like that meme that I keep seeing in the Strong Songs Discord. All music is in 4-4, unless you count it like a nerd. That isn't actually true, but sometimes I guess it is true. So yeah, no need to overcomplicate things. That song is in 4-4. It just has a slightly unusual groove. That's a cool song. All right, so Jeff's second question is about the song Belt by Say Anything. Jeff writes, This is one of my favorite jams of all time. It's such an awesomely chaotic arrangement. My question is about the end of the song, and I wish I could describe it better, but around four minutes into the song, the tempo slows down, and they transition into this new tempo. And then, a little bit later, they transition back to the original tempo, and I can't tell during this section whether they're playing with the actual tempo of the song or they're doing an odd number of beats. I apologize that this is terribly worded, but this has bothered me for 18 years. I can feel it and play along, but I'd sure love to be able to count it. All right, so let's listen to the section in question from Belt by Say Anything. So this is the baseline groove. Two, three, four, one, two, three, four. But then... They change it up. So what and all your A little bit tricky. And then they get trickier. My friends in the alley tonight. And then trickier still. Yeah, what 
So then they're back to the original 4-4 groove, but they're actually at a new third tempo between the first tempo and the slower tempo that they went to originally. So this one is tricky. And what's kind of amazing, Jeff, is that this is technically another example of a song or a section of a song that's actually just in 4-4 common time. But in this case, I actually would recommend thinking of it as having a couple of odd bars, even though you technically can count it in four. And I'm going to try to explain it as best I can. So this is a really cool, very tricky section of the song. And the thing that makes it so tricky is that this section, I guess it's a bridge, this section is at a slightly slower tempo than the rest of the song. They're playing at around 155 beats per minute for most of the song. But the new section is all the way down at like 114 beats per minute. And to get into it, the band all together does a rallentando. They slow down all together into the new tempo. Here's that transition. So I say you and all your friends. So they play at that slower tempo for a few bars, and then they do a group at cello rondo. They speed up, not to the original tempo of 155 beats per minute, but to a new middle tempo of around 130 beats per minute. This section feels more grand and dramatic. This is the big finale, and that's because it's splitting the tempo difference between 114 and 155. Now, if this song were just moving between three different tempos, that wouldn't be all that confusing. Music does that all the time. But in the middle of that first rallentando, they also seemingly drop an eighth note and they turn the groove around. And then later during the accelerando, they add in an eighth note and they turn the groove back around. So you can kind of think of it like a long unbroken chain and each link in the chain is an eighth note. If you take that chain, picture it in your mind, and you take one link of the chain out, the whole thing chunks over by one. And then if you take that link that you removed and a little while later to the right down the chain, you add that link back in, chunk, it kind of goes back to the right and you have a chain that's the same length as before. That's kind of what they're doing here. So you technically can just count eighth notes steadily through the whole thing and you won't lose a beat from 4-4, but for me at least that's harder to do than just counting it like there's two odd meter bars, one at the start and one at the end. At least I would suggest starting it that way since you want to get your head around it. So I would suggest counting this as having a bar of 3-8 during the rallentando and then having a bar of 5-8 during the accelerando at the end. So that bar of 3-8, that removes an eighth note, and the bar of 5-8, that adds an eighth note so you're back technically where you started. That'll allow you to feel the groove in the slow section in a kind of more reasonable way, like this. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. I find it easier to feel the groove in that slow section that way, which means having the bar of 3-8 at the front and the bar of 5-8 at the back, because otherwise you're feeling it really turned around if you're trying to keep the beat consistent. So while that's technically possible, that's the reason I'm sort of suggesting counting it in this way. So let's do those two transitions, the bar of 3-8 up front and the bar of 5-8 at the accelerando in the back. And I'm just going to kind of go through it. It's going to be kind of tricky to keep track of it, especially on that rallentando because the tempo is changing. you got to kind of just keep those eighth notes in your ear because they're coming at a slightly slower speed as we move through the transition. So there's going to be a bar of 4-8, I'll kind of just count it that way, then a bar of 3-8, and then boom, we're right onto the downbeat in that new groove. Here we go. Yeah, this is 
so we're feeling the groove here. Three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And then get ready for it. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. And all your friends. So it's weird. It's a weird one. And like you said, Jeff, you can kind of feel it when you play it. And it's probably better to just kind of try to play it and, and feel it that way. But it's basically one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four at a slower tempo. And it's always going to feel a little bit slippery when you try to count along with it. But that's basically what it is. So everyone just listen to it one time and see if you can hear that. Try to count that in your head. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. And if it helps, there's a hi-hat hit on one, which can kind of help orient you at least uh, the first few times that you're getting your ears around. So what say you and all your friends? So yeah, it really does help to focus on the drums. I'm not going to get too into the particulars any further on this, but if you can hear that hi-hat on the downbeat, it'll help you land on your feet. Now we're here at this new tempo. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And we've got to get out. And like I said, that involves counting a bar of five. I'll count it as two plus three. Here we go. One, two, three, four. One, two, one, two, three. One, two, three, four. So let's just do that one again. It's going to be one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, one, two, three. One, two, three, four. I find that easier than going one, two, three, four, five because five is just harder to say. So one, two, one, two, three. So one more time. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, one, two, three, one. That's what you're going to want to count. Here we go. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. That one's actually more straightforward to me. It's easier for me to count during an accelerando, I guess, than during a rallentando. Uh, for whatever reason, that second odd meter bar is just a little easier to count. I guess it's also easier to get your head around adding an eighth note rather than subtracting one. But either way, I find the five eight bar just a little easier. So if you're following this, you're following this, and I don't want to belabor it for folks who aren't as into odd meter counting, but this is a pretty cool thing, taking out an eighth note at the start of a phrase and then putting it back in at the end, giving yourself two odd meter bars, two different odd meter bars that both equal out to zero when you add them together. Now it's kind of making me mad that that stupid meme has been right twice on this show. I guess this goes to show music can be in 4/4, and even when that's the case, you can still count it like a nerd. Thanks for sending these in, Jeff. These were both really fun to break down. Michal writes. 
For some time, I've had this little problem with two songs. Some time ago, I heard the song "Going On" by Narls Barkley, and it felt weirdly familiar. At first, I thought that maybe it was a cover song, or maybe I'd heard some cover of it. And then it hit me: it sounds very similar to "Cold War" by Janelle Monae. I'm not a fan of modern-day artists suing one another for using the same chords in songs, but these two songs are really close in many aspects. Or is it only in my head? Can you put some light on this case? Well, sure. This is actually a pretty interesting one. I was less familiar with the Narls Barkley song, but I love Cold War because I love the Arch Android, the Janelle Monae album that it's off of. So I'm very familiar with that one. And when I listen to Going On in that context, I can definitely hear the similarities that Michal is asking about. Though once I got under the hood, they're also different in some key ways. So let's start with Going On. Narls Barkley is the name of the collaboration between producer Danger Mouse and singer CeeLo Green. This is from their 2008 album The Odd Couple. Actually, the album of theirs that I'm less familiar with. So here's Going On by Narls Barkley from 2008. that's the gist of going on. That's the basic chord progression they're working with. That's the vibe. Cut to two years later on Janelle Monae's breakout album The Arch Android, which incidentally features the song Tightrope, which I did an episode on back in year one. Really good song, and also the song that gave rise to thump and pop and sizzle, since it has an unusual groove, and I coined that term to describe the groove on it. Anyways, great song, great album, and it features another really good song called Cold War, and that sounds like this. So you think I'm alone? So I'm guessing you can hear what Michal hears, and there's kind of a similarity. Here's Narls Barkley again. And here's Janelle Monae's song from two years later. So yeah, they do have some similarities, but they're also pretty different in some ways. And I want to say up top that I actually just dislike this entire framing. Like, I agree with you, Michal, that I don't like the current culture of artists suing other artists for stealing their songs just because they use a similar chord progression or melody or groove. One of the main goals of Strong Songs is actually to illustrate how music has always just flowed from artist to artist and how the art grows when we borrow from one another and embellish on one another's ideas. That's been going on way longer than anyone's been suing anyone else about stealing their chord progression or whatever. But to compare them, there are some timbral similarities. There's that or organ or organ-like drone that kind of plays a leading tone through the chord progression on both of them. The mix and some of the EQ filters are similar. There's like a vibe similarity, but I'd say that makes sense. These are more or less contemporaneous recordings, and those kinds of sounds, those kinds of filters, were pretty common in popular music at the time. They're also just pretty different songs as compositions. They're at different tempos. Cold War is much faster. It has a much more aggressive feel. The melodies are different. The vocal performances sound different. And the chords, they convey a similar vibe and they have some similarities to both minor keyed songs, but the chords are also different. So going on moves between two key centers, F minor and E flat minor, so down a whole step. And it's doing the same chord progression in both of those key centers. It goes one, five minor, flat seven major, four major. So in F that's F minor, 
C minor, E flat major, B flat major. It does that in the key of F, then it goes to E flat, then back to F, and it alternates between those two different key centers doing that same four chord chord progression. Cold War has some structural similarities, but it's also a little bit different. It does have one chord progression and it moves through two different key centers, but they're a fourth apart, so there's F minor and B flat minor. The chord progression is also different. It's four chords, same as the Gnarls Barkley song, but they're different chords. It goes one minor, flat three major, flat seven major, four minor. So in F minor, that's F minor, A flat major, E flat major, B flat minor. So I can hear what you're hearing. There's a kind of a similar vibe. They're both minor key chord progressions. They both feature that one minor and that flat seven major, but those are pretty common chord progressions. I mean, both of them have turned up a lot of places. So they have some stuff in common, but they're also fairly different compositions. I can't say for sure if Janelle Monet or her co-songwriters or producers heard or were in any way influenced by that Gnarls Barkley recording. That totally could be possible. And if that were the case, that'd be fine, right? It'd be okay. It'd be great. Musicians are influenced by other musicians. It's a normal thing. I just, I really kind of bristle at viewing things this way because it's such an industry-focused art-as-product way of viewing what is really basically the most fundamental universal form of artistic expression that exists, music. I think I've ranted about this before, so I'll keep this short, but like I understand why people view things this way. There's a lot of discussion about it right now. It's a pretty hot topic. There's a whole cottage industry on YouTube of people who do these explainers and comparisons, just like I kind of just did. And I get that they're just commenting on the news and what's happening in the music industry, but there's just so much talk about this. And from this framing, and this framing, it puts music into this restrictive category where it's all about who owns it and who profits from it, and it has so little to do with what actually makes music music and what actually makes music amazing. That's not to say that theft doesn't happen, that no one should ever talk about it when it does. It does happen, rarely, but it happens, and particularly when someone with more power steals ideas from someone with less power, that is important to talk about. I mean, that's one reason that the industry sanctioned appropriation of black music by white artists that took place in the 50s and 60s and still takes place today is kind of in a distinct category. But generally, I prefer to think instead in terms of inspiration and influence, which transforms a comparison between two similar songs, like the ones we were just listening to, from something fraught with legal and ethical connotations into something that's simply interesting and celebrating the way that music constantly flows on this tide of inspiration and imitation that it endlessly changes and renews itself in a way that's amazing. So they're both great songs, they sound similar in interesting ways, and that's about as far as I go with it. Listen to both of these albums. They're both really good. Last question comes from Brett. Yet again, my friend Brett is going to bring us home at the end of the episode. He always knows how to write in and ask good questions. Brett writes, I definitely stopped listening to music generally and popular music, especially around the time I went into grad school, because lyrics in particular make me unable to concentrate on programming, something I actually talked about on the most recent Q&A before this one. As a result, Brett writes, I've kind of never gone back. Anything you've analyzed post-1990 is likely something I've only heard a few times, and there came a point where I threw my hands up and gave up on ever catching 
catching up with whatever popular modern music was going on. What do you do when you've fallen away from music for so long in today's media environment? How do you keep current with current music? Well, Brett, this is something that I've have definitely struggled with as well. I'm not the most current guy. There are times where I'll read professional music critics, you know, at, I don't know, Slate or NPR, one of those places where people who've been doing this their whole lives are writing music criticism. And it's so overwhelming how much music they listen to, how aware they are of every single artist from every era, including modern eras. I mean, it makes me feel like I could never, ever listen to everything, which is true. And I suppose that's an important first step, just to acknowledge that there's no way to listen to everything. It's just not going to happen. And I guess, I mean, that's true with movies. That's true with books. That's true with video games. That's kind of true with everything. There's too much stuff and uh, not enough time. But here's my tip. I'm just going to give you one tip. And it's going to sound a little bit like I'm just shouting out my own Discord server. But I swear this is a good tip. Join a listening club. We do a listening club in the Strong Songs Discord, which anyone is welcome to join. You can join it. There's a link down in the show notes. You should come join. And you don't even have to participate in the conversation. But every week, two people will pick one album and everyone will just listen to that album. And it's been really amazing for me. I mean, our listeners pick all kinds of stuff. Albums that I really love, albums that maybe aren't totally my thing, but I still think are interesting. I am one of those people who finds something to like in almost everything. But I've heard so many new artists as a result of that listening club. I mentioned this earlier in the episode. Jameson Ross, who I knew as a jazz drummer, I had no idea that he was a singer. I definitely wouldn't have listened to his new album if someone hadn't put it in the listening club, uh, made it a pick a couple of weeks ago. So that's my recommendation is join a listening club. It doesn't have to be in the Strong Songs Discord. They actually also do a weekly album in the Triple Click Discord for my games podcast. But it doesn't even have to be in a Discord that's associated with me. It doesn't have to be on Discord at all. There's plenty of listening clubs out there that you can join. And that's my recommendation is just somewhere where someone else is going to be picking one or two albums for you to listen to, and then just have the discipline to listen to them. And you'll find that over time, you really catch up with a lot of modern stuff and listen to a lot of music that you wouldn't have listened to, both modern stuff and older stuff. And it can it can really broaden your horizons in a cool way. It's not dissimilar from a book club or any other club like that. So that's my one piece of advice to you, Brett. Join a listening club somewhere and uh, listen to some new music. Good luck, and I hope you find some good stuff to listen to. And that'll do it for this latest mailbag episode. I went more in-depth on some of these questions than I was expecting to, but it was a lot of fun, and sometimes the questions just merit a longer answer. What are you going to do? Thanks to everyone who sent in a question, and if you want to send one in but haven't, email it to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. I may not be able to get to it, but I keep every question that I get, so even if you sent one in a while ago, I could still hit it one of these days. We've gone long, and I won't keep you, but if you dig this show, I hope you'll consider sharing it. Tell people in servers or Facebook groups, on Discord servers you might be in, recommend it to friends you think might like it, leave a review on the podcast app that you're listening on. I also hope you'll consider becoming a patron or sending in a donation because that really is the only way that I make money on this show and that allows me to put a lot of time into it. This episode's outro soloist is a fun story. Listener Tim Howes decided to take it upon himself to dust off his saxophone and lay down an outro solo on his own. He sent it in, it sounded fantastic, so he's going to be this episode's outro soloist. And I've actually mentioned this before, but if you're listening and you'd like to record a solo of your own, I'll put a link to the SoundCloud accompaniment file in the show notes. It's just posted there, you can download it, and there's also a link to the lead sheet if you want to play along. So stick around for Tim, he sounds great, and I'll see you all in two weeks with yet another strong song.